You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 21. We will be in Acts 21, verses 1 through 16 today. If this is your first time with us, we have been working really all year, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts, and we are making our way towards the conclusion of Acts. But today we find ourselves with Paul making the journey back towards Jerusalem. And so let's read God's word together, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll get to work. Uh, seeing what God has to teach us this morning. So Acts 21, starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos. And the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you might help us. For Father, we know that apart from your spirit, we cannot understand and apply your word. So spirit, we pray that you might illuminate our minds and our hearts. And Lord, help us as followers of Jesus to count the cost of our obedience, to count the cost of our discipleship, And Lord, that you might make us willing to serve you in whatever capacity you call us to serve. And Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Amen. So you may not have known this about me, but I wasn't always a pastor. I've been in ministry for most of my life, my professional career, but I did have a short stint, and by short I mean about seven day stint, at a Walmart distribution center. So this is a center where Walmart shipped all of its groceries to all of its stores across the Southeast. And so it's a big shipping hub. And like many shipping hubs, you've ever been to one or you've seen them, they are gigantic. They are huge. It's a maze of, of aisles, of shelves stacked up to the ceiling. I mean, it's just a huge, huge place. So through this labyrinth of Gigantic machinery would, would drive through those really narrow aisles, forklifts and trucks whizzing by with food stacked upon wooden pallets. And so, as you might imagine, that could be a pretty dangerous environment to work in. So in the warehouse, there were three goals, efficiency, accuracy, and of course, safety. Safety. The managers, a lot of times they emphasize safety above everything else. The last thing that they needed in their warehouse was some Yahoo training for ministry to be driving a forklift, knocking over aisles filled with household chemicals. It's not what anybody wanted. So the company celebrated, and they made a big deal of emphasizing safety by marking how many days the warehouse had gone without an accident. So safety is such a huge priority for corporate America, isn't it? In fact, it's such a priority for the United States that the United States created this organization called OSHA, right? The Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And of course, OSHA exists to regulate and enforce safety procedures and policies for workers. So now while the United States has OSHA to protect workers' safety, the kingdom of God does not have an occupational safety and health administration. It's not the way the kingdom of God works. Because while safety might be a big priority for corporate America, it's not necessarily a priority for Jesus and his kingdom. And so I think because we live in a society marked by such affluence and leisure and an overall safe life, at least compared to most people in the world today, we Christians in America, I think we tend to get a bit of a soft underbelly, don't we? We tend to enjoy our ease, and we grow risk-averse, and we tend to retreat into the security of our normal, predictable routines. And so if some Christians in, in the early history of the church had this martyrdom complex, I think today we've developed a bit of a cowardice complex, haven't we? That though we shouldn't go looking for danger like a fool, I think it is concerning, though, that most of us who follow Jesus assume implicitly that God would never ask us to put our lives at risk for the gospel. We just don't even think that's a possibility of something God might call us to as believers. So we unknowingly and subconsciously Reject even the possibility that God might have me do something that puts my, my life at risk. So as we look at Acts chapter 21, we see Paul bring his third missionary journey to a conclusion as he returns to Jerusalem. 
And in this passage, Luke gives us one of his travel logs. We've seen a few of these throughout Paul's missionary journeys. Where Paul's traveling from city to city to city, making his way to a particular destination. And so we see that here in this travel log. But as we see Paul make his travel back to Jerusalem, we see the church becomes increasingly concerned for the safety of Paul. And the Holy Spirit actually makes it clear of the certain danger that awaits Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. And so even though risk and suffering await Paul, Paul chose to obey Christ. He chose to treasure the name of Jesus even above his own life. And so here is the the sermon summary, that entrusting the will of God embraced the danger of costly obedience to Christ. While trusting in the will of God embraced the danger of costly obedience to Christ. So this morning, let's first kind of go through this text and see Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem. And then I want to give you, at the end of the sermon, three principles for how you and I can embrace the dangers of this costly obedience that we're talking about. So let's first think about Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem. So Paul said goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and now he's hurrying to Jerusalem. And of course, as Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem, he's checking in on the churches in the area as he goes. And so this travel log helps us map Paul's journey, but we see that the Christians are increasingly concerned about Paul going to Jerusalem. They don't think it's a very good idea. And so one of the first things we see in this text in verse 1 through 12 is how the Spirit warns of danger. Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. He passes through Tyre. And while waiting for the ship to unload its cargo, Paul took a seven-day layover while waiting. And of course, while he's hanging out for seven days, he's not just twiddling his thumbs. He seeks out other believers in the city. He gets together with them. And then look at what Luke tells us in verse 4. Luke tells us, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And look at this. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, the Holy Spirit had given the church there knowledge of what awaited Paul should he go to Jerusalem. So they tried to convince Paul. They said, Paul, danger is coming. Don't go. But Paul was undeterred. He was intent on continuing his way to Jerusalem and after gathering with the church, with the wives and the children of, that, of the members there on the beach, they prayed, they knelt together, and then they departed as Paul continued on in his journey. Now, after traveling across the Mediterranean, Paul next arrived at the port city of Caesarea. And we see that Philip, the evangelist, is there in Caesarea. This is one of the seven chosen to serve the, the widows back in Acts chapter 6. And so Philip had taken up residence in this city as his hub for ministry. So last time we encountered Philip, if you remember back to this year, right, earlier in this year, we we talked about how Philip led a gospel awakening among the Samaritans, and that Philip went south of Jerusalem. He went there by the call of the Spirit to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, of course, we are told that Philip settles down in Caesarea. And so we see that that Paul meets up with with Philip in the city. 
we also see that Luke is also still with Paul, right? We, we know that Luke is traveling with Paul at this point because of his use of the first-person plural pronoun, right? We in verse 12. So Luke probably recorded these events of ministry uh, in Acts 8. When you think about Philip's ministry, he recorded that probably directly from the testimony of Philip. He hung out with Philip. He heard about all that had taken place. So Philip had seven unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while they were staying with, with Philip, we're told that the prophet Agabus came to Caesarea. Now, again, if you've been tracking with us through this series on the book of Acts, you'll remember that this isn't the first time Agabus was mentioned. He was mentioned uh, back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, where he told the church in Antioch about the famine uh, that was coming throughout the land, which led the church in Antioch to collect a relief offering for the saints and the brothers in Judea. So this is the same man. And so though we don't know much about Agabus, we know that he seemed to have this Holy Spirit-given ability of prophetic insight into the future. And he sees that the, the Acts and operates very similar to a lot of the Old Testament prophets we read about. And so the Spirit gave him this ability, and so like the Old Testament prophets, he tended to have a penchant for object lessons. And so Agabus takes Paul's belt while he's in Caesarea, and then he binds his own feet and hands with it, and Agabus gives Paul this message from the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So all of this perhaps raises a few questions in your mind about the nature of prophecy in the New Testament and whether Paul, as he's making his way from to Jerusalem, whether he's being disobedient and heeding the Holy Spirit's warnings. After all, he was warned not just once, but twice of the danger that is to come. Was Paul just a, a stubborn man? Is Paul being disobedient in the Holy Spirit by going to Jerusalem? Well, the answer, as you might expect, is no. He's not being disobedient. He's not being stubborn. He is being obedient to the Lord by going to Jerusalem. Now, Christians today debate whether the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy, continue in the church today. And if it does continue today, what is the function of prophecy? And what's its purpose? What do we mean by it when we talk about it in the local church? So some Christians, who typically call themselves charismatic, they, they believe that the occurrences of prophecy are expected to continue in the life of the church even to this day. But even among those more charismatically inclined, there are some disagreements about what do we mean when we talk about what prophecy is. So some consider these prophecies uh, an authority rivaling that of Scripture, which you might imagine can be very dangerous, can't it? Where people, can, people in power can, can abuse God's flock with such prophecies. For example, you could have a malicious shepherd that say, well, the, the Lord told me to tell you this, and you better do it at the if you disobey me, you're disobeying God. That can be very dangerous, isn't it? But some charismatics don't take that approach. Some charismatics, like Wayne Grudem, for example, hold firmly to the authority of God's word and the supremacy of God's word, but, but does believe prophecy can happen, even though prophecy can be an error. But still, there are others who call themselves cessationists, who believe that all the Holy Spirit's supernatural gifts that we see in the New Testament, that they all stopped 
after the age of the apostles and the closing of the New Testament canon. And most of those arguments for cessationism actually are grounded in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says that prophecies will pass away. And as the church matures, we now have the perfect Holy Scripture, and so the, the partial has passed away after the age of the apostles. And now we have the perfect, we have the Word of God to guide us. So my stance on the matter of this very contentious debate in the Christian church today is to be open but cautious about these supernatural spiritual gifts, including prophecy. So I would share in the same critique as many of my cessationist friends would about the charismatic movement. But there is a, that there is a legitimate risk when we talk about this to diminishing the authority of God's words, and that, that needs to be rejected. Where people chase after the miraculous instead of Jesus and where people use spiritual gifts as an excuse to abuse God's people. So I believe the Holy Spirit, though, can and does work in supernatural ways through his people, even to this day. But of course, everything, as John tells us, must be tested by the Word of God, tested by the Scriptures. So even with the ongoing debate and conversation about the supernatural spiritual gifts— Acts 21 actually doesn't provide us any challenges to resolve. Not when you carefully examine what's actually happening here. While it might look at first glance that Paul is disobeying the Holy Spirit, we see clearly that the Holy Spirit did not forbid Paul from going to Jerusalem. But still, he is telling the church that Paul will experience danger when he does go to Jerusalem. So again, back in Acts 19, you can flip over there if you like. If you look at Acts 21, Luke tells us that Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. He resolved in the Holy Spirit. So back in Acts 19, we see the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, while entire in our passage today, right, verse 4, Luke says, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So it was the Spirit giving contradictory messages to Paul and to the saints at Tyre. No, that he's not. Most likely what's happened here is the Holy Spirit informed the church of the danger that awaited Paul, and it was their own reaction in their flesh to try to keep him from going, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this explanation makes sense when we see Agab Agabus' prophecy, which does something very similar as he binds his hands together, he tells Paul, this is what's going to happen to you, according to the Holy Spirit, when you go to Jerusalem. But look at what Agabus, he never tells Paul, the Holy Spirit says not to go. Only what awaits him when he does go. That's important. So here's the thing I have to remember about what's happening in Tyre and what's even happening here in Caesarea, is that the church, the saints, the Christians, are begging for Paul not to go. And that comes from a prophetically informed church, but this is not a prophetic command not to go. In other words, the church hears through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Paul, danger awaits you. You're going to be arrested. You shouldn't go. It's dangerous. But the Holy Spirit never told Paul not to go, only what would come when he went. So whatever your view about what the New Testament teaches about the continuation of biblical prophecy. The Holy Spirit gave the church at Tyre and Agabus an understanding of what was to come for Paul. But Paul 
determines to obey the Holy Spirit's call to go, even though there's danger that awaits him. Like the church in Tyre, the church at Caesarea, along with Luke, they try to convince Paul not to go. Look at what, what Luke says. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So not only the church there, but even Luke is getting in. The companions that are with Paul, that are traveling with Paul, they're pleading, Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Danger awaits. Haven't you heard Agabus's prophecy? You're going to be arrested when you go. And we can understand, don't we, why they might feel that way? After all, they love Paul. Paul is a beloved father figure to them. He has become the key leader in the church, the key church planner, the key apostle to the Gentiles. And so to the church, the best thing for the kingdom, the best thing for the health of the church is to keep Paul alive, to keep him active, to keep him doing gospel ministry without change. That was a priority. They thought that's, that's obviously what God would have you do. And when they heard Agabus' prophecy, they just took it as a sign. All right, well, that, danger awaits, Paul, that you should go. You should stay away from Jerusalem. But yet we see, secondly, that the Spirit compels Paul to go. The Spirit compels Paul to go. Imagine being in Paul's position here. Imagine that everyone you love is confronting you in some sort of intervention, and they're begging you for the sake of your life, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. It's too dangerous. And so Paul's spiritual family provides, presents this united front, trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, which they are convinced is a suicide mission. And yet Paul was determined to go compelled by the Spirit to this assignment. And so the tears of his spiritual family could not deter Paul. You, you can see here Paul's vulnerability, his emotions, how this plea is impacting his heart. Look at what he says. He's verse 13. He says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. You see that Paul's friends, their, their tender plea, it's moving Paul emotionally. But yet Paul decides... I will obey the Lord Jesus Christ even if it costs me my life. Paul did not care about his safety, but he longed to obey the will of the Lord, to magnify Jesus with his life no matter the cost. So, so Paul tells them, he says, he tells them, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. You see, even though his suffering was unavoidable, Paul determined to go to Jerusalem being obedient to the Spirit. You see, Paul counted his life as no value to him at all. He wrote to the Philippian church, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through our prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, Paul's desire, his desire was for Christ to be honored in his body, whether he lived or whether he died. And if he lived, he would gladly count the cost. He would gladly do whatever it takes to make Christ's name great among the nations. 
And if, in his efforts of advancing the gospel, Paul would die because of it, he would rejoice because the resurrection of Christ made sure his gain. So as the church warned Paul of the danger in Jerusalem, they could not persuade Paul. He could not be deterred. Paul, in effect, tells him, he says, Brothers, you're concerned for my safety. It's moving. But why are you asking me to avoid Jerusalem? Why would I be disobedient to the Spirit's call for the sake of my safety? Have I not suffered for the gospel in my ministry? Have you not seen me suffer? Has it deterred me in any way from speaking about Christ? For the name of Jesus will be honored in my life, and I will go on preaching the gospel where the Spirit calls, no matter the danger that awaits. Paul tells them, in Christ, I have no fear of death. No fear, because I live in Jesus. And so for the sake of the gospel, Paul says, I will gladly go. I will gladly be locked up in Jerusalem. But church, listen, even if I lose my head, I will go to Jerusalem. Not because I'm stubborn, but because I'm obedient. I go for the name of Jesus Christ. I go for his praise. I go for his honor. I go for his fame. And though your concern for me moves me greatly, I live for the name of Jesus. And church, you will not persuade me. You will not persuade me to disobey my king. So Paul determined to go. And his companions in the church, they finally relented in their protest. And they rest in God's sovereignty, letting the will of the Lord be done. And so the journey to Jerusalem continues with Paul staying in the house of Mason of Cyprus. And we will find out what happens as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem next week. But as we look at this text, I want to help us think through a little bit. How do we put this into practice? How do I embrace this costly obedience to Jesus? You see, the Spirit warned Paul of the danger, but yet the Spirit compelled Paul to go. And as Christians, I think we must come to view our lives as the Apostle Paul viewed his life. That it's so easy to get comfortable in our lives that we might fail to consider that God might be calling us to risk our security, to risk our safety for his kingdom purposes. Now again, we don't go and seek out danger for danger's sake, but we must be open to the Spirit leading us in risky ways that may cause our own families, and yes, even our own church, to raise their eyebrows in concern. So let me give us three principles here, based off of this text, that we learn, I think, from Paul's example about how we can embrace that costly obedience we're talking about today. One of the first things that we see is that we have to listen to the counsel of other believers. But ultimately, we obey the will of Christ. We listen to the counsel of other believers, but obey the will of Christ. Now, the counsel from other believers is invaluable to the Christian life. We should seek out the counsel of other Christians. We should get their help in helping us to determine God's will for our lives. So every Christian needs to have the humility to hear the counsel from others in the Lord. Say, brother, sister, advise me. What are some concerns? 
Do you sense this might be where God is taking me? That is a wise thing to do. And of course, in addition to the counsel of other believers, we have the word of God helping us make whatever decisions and making sure that those decisions are being supported by scripture, not by our own ideas. But there are times in your life and in mine where the spirit may lead us to act in obedience. And sometimes those actions may be questioned by other well-meaning, spirit-filled Christians. After humility and careful prayer and consideration, we, we hear their counsel, we listen to them, but ultimately, we must choose to obey the will of Christ, even if it goes against the expectations of the church or our closest friends. We do so wisely, we do so carefully, but at times, following Jesus will make you look foolish, even to other Christians. So when Jim Elliott determined to give his life for the Aruga Indians in Ecuador, many questioned his decision. And they said, Jim, you're, you're too gifted. You're too talented. You've got too many spiritual gifts to go to Ecuador. They thought the church in America, we need a guy like Jim Elliott. We need his ministry. We need his preaching ability. We need him. We shouldn't squander his gifts that the Lord has given him by wasting them in Ecuador on the mission field. But Jim Elliott determined to go, despite the pleading of other Christians. In fact, Jim Elliott would say this. He said, consider the call from the throne above. Go ye and from round about, come over and help us. And even the call from damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers that they may come to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while these Indians perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. So with that rebuke, Jim Elliott left America along with four others and gave his life in the preaching of the gospel. Secondly, we have to count the cost of following Jesus. We have to count the cost of following Jesus. <coughs> The Christian life demands cross-bearing, bearing our cross. And of course, Jesus is our forerunner in this. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he has not done himself. He has carried the cross of our condemnation. He has laid down his life for us. Jesus atoned for our sin. He paid the penalty for God's wrath against our rebellion. He endured the shame and the pain of the cross for our salvation. After all, Jesus said, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, as Americans, and I think this is a unique temptation we face as American Christians, we cannot forget that our discipleship demands suffering that we mainly expect 
We mainly expect that God is going to give me an easy life, a comfortable life, a prosperous life. We think that's the default. The default Christian life is easy, comfortable, and prosperous. That's not the default in the New Testament. And then we begin to raise our fist up at the Lord when he has us bear a cross for his sake, to suffer for his kingdom. You see, far too many want a nice and leisurely discipleship that doesn't impinge upon my life in any sort of costly way. We want Jesus. We want his benefits. We want salvation. We want redemption. But we push away at Jesus when he begins to make any sort of claims upon our lives. We want a Christian life without the cost. However, we have to come to grips with the biblical reality the reality demonstrated by the Apostle Paul that when we become a Christian, Christ is our life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We have to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul would about his own life, that I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in this life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, God might not call all of us to go into harm's way, but we have to be open to the fact that he may call us to go into harm's way. He may ask us to give up our possessions, to give up our home, to give up our creature comforts in American life, to go to a place where he has yet to be known. So let me ask you some hard questions. Does it cost you anything to follow Jesus right now? Is it costing you in your giving, in your calendar, in your leisure, in your home, in your standard of living? Is it costing you in any of those areas? What ways are you right now counting the cost of your discipleship for the fame of Christ's name? And if you can't name any, you may need to find some time with the Holy Spirit alone this afternoon and take an audit of your priorities and begin to ask yourself some hard questions about what it really means to follow Jesus. Am I living my life with Christ as my treasure, or am I using Christ to protect an idolatrous treasure of safety, security, and comfort? Adoniram Judson left to go to Burma with his new wife as a Baptist missionary. And Adoniram Judson suffered incredibly in his mission work for 38 years. And while there, he faced constant disease like cholera and malaria and dysentery. And the dangerous conditions of ministry there, along with these diseases, took the life of his first wife, his second wife, and seven of his 13 children. And it took years, years, before he saw any fruit of his long suffering. But due to his resolve to count the cost, to be obedient to the Lord, there are now 4,000 Baptist congregations in Burma and over half a million believers in those churches that can trace their lineage back to the ministry of Adonai Judson. We have to be prepared to count the cost. Thirdly, 
Desire the fame of Christ's name above your life. Desire the fame of Christ's name above your life. If we have counted the cost, if you have counted the cost, if you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, then we will gladly do whatever Christ calls us to do, even if we lose our own lives. Now, do you desire the fame of Jesus' name like this? Do you long for him to be known, for him to be exalted and worshipped? And are you living your life for his sake, or are you living your life for your sake? Have you given Jesus that blank check with your life? And say, Jesus, fill this in however you see fit. I want to live for your glory, not mine. I want to value your kingdom, not mine. I want to see your fame made known, not mine. You see, a Christ-centered life will gladly lay down its life for Jesus, even if it means imprisonment. Yes, as Paul said, even if it means death. We lay it all on the line for Jesus, and we go and do whatever it is King Jesus beckons us to do. It was such obedience that led to David Livingstone to go to Africa for the sake of the gospel. He would write, so powerfully convinced am I that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to Africa. I will go no matter who opposes me. As Livingston encountered countless afflictions, his friends like Henry Stanley tried to persuade him to come home, and Livingston would write back to the London Missionary Society and said, God has called me to Africa, and I'm staying here. And Livingstone died from dysentery at the age of 60 from malaria while ministering in an African village. You see, Church Christ has not asked us to treasure our lives, but to treasure, treasure Jesus. And if you are a Christian, God has called you to repent of selfishness and sin. And the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts and has helped us to recognize the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above everything and everyone else. Christ has saved you by faith. And now we have the privilege as those saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ to live our lives as a demonstration that Christ is our joy, that he is our treasure, that he is of surpassing value. You see, your purpose is to glorify the name of Jesus and to make him known among the peoples of the earth. And so as you determine what is God's will for my life? What would he have me do? We have to remind ourselves that safety is not a factor when it comes to our obedience, particularly when we have a Savior who bids us to come and die, to take up our cross, to follow him even unto death. Whatever happens to us, we have to resolve like the church did with Paul. We leave it to the will of the Lord. So we obey Jesus. And as the church resolved, we rest in God's will. And we count the cost in this life because of the reward of faith in the next. For to us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, we confess how selfishly absorbed we can be in our lives. Father, that so often in our relationship with you that we are not even open to the fact that you might call us to risk our lives for your sake. Father, I pray 
Lord, that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be so impassioned for the glory of King Jesus, that we would go and do whatever it is you call us to go and do. Lord, that we would give you that blank check of our lives and let you fill in the cost. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful in whatever you may call us to. But Father, we are grateful for the men and women throughout church history who have given their lives for the cause of Christ in unknown and unreached places. And Father, I do pray that even among Redemption Church, that you would raise missionaries and church planters who would feel pressed by your Holy Spirit to go and to proclaim the gospel where it is yet to be proclaimed. Father, I pray that no matter the risk, no matter the cost, no matter the disruption to our lives, that we would obey you. Because you are our treasure. We love you. And Father, we would rest in your will wherever it is you take us. So Father, I do pray, Lord, for every Christian here that they would be obedient to your call. And Lord, I also pray for those who are here who don't know Jesus Christ. The the talk of losing their lives for Jesus might sound foolish to them, but Lord, they have yet to see the value of Christ and of the gospel. So Father, I pray, Lord, that they, this morning, might be awakened to the value of Jesus, that they would see their sin and their rebellion against you, but Father, they would humble themselves and come to the Savior who bore the cross for them, who took on their punishment, who was condemned in their place, so that they might have eternal life through repentance and faith. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would save those who are lost this morning, and Lord, that they would give up their lives for Christ, even as you have given up your life for them, Lord. So Father, we pray that during this time, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to probe us and examine us and lead us to obedience, even costly obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.